Welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast, the Pythian School of Futures. And today we're going to speak about the nation states and about the concept of the statehood, identity. And although the subject seems to be somehow detached and rather being not that connected to what we were talking about before, in the course of this episode, we will see that actually everything is very much interconnected and everything is in the all the projects in the pipeline of the Ivanir Institute are feeding one another. So the episode is entitled The State of Noland, and it might be a little bit confusing in the topic and the subject, what does it mean, the state of Noland? And today's conversation will be therefore structured mainly on the basis of two components. First of all, I will arrive to the definition of the state of Noland and what was the rationale for creation of the project like that. And then I will define what the state of Noland is actually. So state of Noland is basically a no space. State of Noland is the idea of statehood that does not require land and does not require any material points of reference, uh, such as culture or titular population or any other components that combine and make up the nation state as we know it. But again, we will see more in detail what it means as soon as the uh, critical analysis of what nation state is will be completed. So let's dive into that. So first of all, what is the nation state? And uh, the state of Noland uh, as a project and as a mode of thinking was born in conversation with the concept of the nation state and as a, in a way, response to the world that we're living in, which is completely composed of the nation states. Again, if we will Google for now the political map of the world or look at the political map of the world right now, it's basically colorful patchwork style border defined carpet that consists of different names and of the countries with their capitals and they all basically installed there in a way as they existed forever like that or as they meant to exist forever from the time on. But the first very interesting revelation comes from the perspective that the actually the idea of the nation state and the idea of that patchwork that we are currently engaged with is rather young and the first reference to the idea of the nation state appears conceptually and materially in diplomacy, just in modernity, in the modern history. So the concept of the nation state is, in that regard, is quite a new, actually, product of the political design. And the uh, the empires that we know and the histories that we research, for example, the histories of, I don't know, Persian Empire or the histories of the Roman Empire or ancient Greece or any other states and the ancient civilizations that we're used to analyze in history, when they are approached from the perspective and from the logic of the nation state, it is actually a historical mistake or it is the attempt to analyze a frame, a political frame, and the organism of society, the, like those empires, for example, with the logical frame and with the logical perspective that does not apply specifically to that context. To make an example, it's like analyzing the ancient chariots as 
as and compare them directly, for example, to the racing cars or to the Formula One bullets or something like that. It's of course they do have similarities. They both have wheels, but the principle of their work is completely different. As in a chariot, you have a horse, and in the bullet, you have an engine that works on completely different premises. So in that sense, comparing the equalizing the states, the, the what we call the states basically, and what we call the political organisms of the history before invention of the notion of the nation-state and after invention of the nation-state is similar to that metaphor. So again, returning to the definition, I would define nation-state as a modern fiction, uh, first of all, because the nation-state as such, and if we analyze any nation-state as it exists at the moment, take, for example, the United Kingdom, where I am now located. The United Kingdom is the island, basically, that is drawn on that map, on that patchwork that we can see as soon as we look at the political map of the world. But those borders that are highlighted in specific colors and that are creating the shape that is called the United Kingdom are not in any way defined and, and anyhow is not defined beyond the, this metaphorical and this imaginary structures of the uh, understanding of the world and understanding of the space and the land that are just drafted in a specific documents. And those documents are passed through through writing and through the memory and through installation of that concept of the United Kingdom to that land on that particular geographical space. But if I would imagine, for example, some sort of an alien arriving to the United Kingdom tomorrow who does not understand the concept of nation state or never met any political organization that in any way anthropomorphic and deals with a, a human history, the whole concept of the nation state could be explained only through these documents, but there is no material evidence of that nation state. There are no particular materialized anchors that could establish the materiality of the nation state. And that's true for all the nation states. The nation states are defined by the imaginary constructs. And that's another important component of the definition of the nation state. Nation states exist in the political imaginary, collective political imaginary, which is formed through many different compositions of the human interactions that is materialized through symbols and through specific documents. And those two specific documents that actually gave birth to the idea of the nation states are very particularized in the European history and are very European again. And although the nation states, as they present themselves in the contemporary environment, for example, again, if we look at the map of the world right now, and we talk about the movements like decolonization movement or any sort of attempts to de-Europeanize the history of the world, we still live in this very much European world of perception of the political design. Because the concept of the nation state, again, the place which is defined by this very much of a static borders, the capital which exists in the geographical map with the capital, originating in 17th century from two particular documents. One document is the Treaty of Westphalia, which was signed in 1648 by the battling European kingdoms for around 100 years before that time. And it was one of the most devastating and bloodiest wars that European continent knew at that moment. 
more than 8 million people died in that war, and the war was informed by two particular conflicting narratives, the religious narrative and the dynastic narrative. The Catholics and Protestants in Europe were fighting amongst each other, as well as the, uh, the situation was complicated by the participation of from the rivaling royal families that sometimes ignored their theological allegiance and Catholics supporting Protestants, basically, like in the case of France, for example, supporting the Protestant unions for the case of overthrowing another another dynastic house. And that's very important in that place, because as soon as this, the peace needed to be signed, it couldn't be signed as it was used to be approached just during the previous wars, for example, 100 to 200 years ago, because the religious borders and the theological borders, as well as the dynastic borders, were much more clear. But because of the muddy nature of that war, the peace accord needed to be signed on a very, very new grounds, on the grounds that create some sort of a universal definition of what the political organism is. And during the course of more than 100 delegations that moved between two cities in order to sign that peace accord, the very important principle that originated the idea of the nation-state was born, the principle of geopolitics, the principle where the particular states, such as France or Germany, could basically draw a particular fundamentalized border which is not dependent on the either religious or dynastic allegiance, or, for example, any sort of allegiance that is rather dynamic or is not static per se, but is very much permanent. And the geopolitical allegiance created the situation within which the idea of universal peace was born. The universal peace as such as, as you define very particular static fundamental border that is not meant to move in any sense away. It creates a static culture and a static nation that is then claiming this particular piece of land as this ancestral permanent, eternal, you could say, basically, space of political inhabitation. And the second document beyond the Treaty of Westphalia, and I remind the uh, Treaty of Westphalia was signed in 1648. And funnily enough, in 1651, the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes publishing a book called The Leviathan. And that book Leviathan outlines the logic of the definition of political organism in modernity and introduces such terminologies in the political vocabulary of the uh, ruling European classes and academia, such as the sovereign, the idea of sovereignty. And those of you who are listening to us and following the Brexit conversations probably already sick of hearing this word that is perpetually repeated by the British government, the sovereignty of the British government is meant to be respected by the European Union. So this idea of sovereignty is very much outlined within the Hobbesian logic, where sovereign is represented as a sort of a mega man, as an entity that embodies that geographical border that has had become static after the Westphalian Treaty. So the Hobbes imagined the sovereign and the idea of the sovereignty as a collective organism out of which the, the cells of which basically are all the individual citizens, us people who inhabit this particular land. So, for example, I am in that sense as a person who is a national of Belgium, I am a little cell of Belgium in that sense. And the whole Belgium, in this Hobbesian logic, is a sort of a mega Gulliver man, as a huge organism that is operating by the 
legitimacy and by the mandate that is provided to this body by all the cells, all the components of the cells of that body. And important to mention here that, again, that Hobbes did not invent the concept of sovereignty. I would not go deeper into that because we will lose the line in here. But Hobbes was the first theorist who basically highlighted that connection between geopolitics and the sovereignty through this metaphor of the mega man of this. And, and again, we are hearing constantly in the news lines, for example, in all of the language currently that, for example, uh, such titles like France is talking to Germany today in Berlin or Turkey, Turkey claimed that Greece is doing this or Greece sends a note to Turkey about that and so on and so on and so on. But we perfectly understand that Greece itself cannot send a note because a Greece or Turkey are imaginary concepts. There's nothing material about those particular places. They're only embodied by the institutions and by the symbols that create materiality of them. But exactly the language and the conversation, and we talked a lot about the importance of the language in relation to the concept of power. So the language creates already this sort of a psychological trick in our perception and the way how we talk talk about politics and the way how we talk about the nation states as their real people, you could say, or their real f- organisms. They, and that's exactly Hobbesian logic, that realness of the France or realness of United Kingdom or Turkey or Greece and so on, talking to one another. But therefore, the phrases like France speaks to Germany or Russia is, I don't know, offended by the United States in a way are meant in language to deliver this perception that these are two individual organisms with their own rationale, with their own consciousness, somehow talking to one another. And we are just the little cells. We are citizens, basically, who are inhabiting those sort of geographically defined lands. So another important idea that Hobbes outlined in the Leviathan, in that fundamental work, is that in case Leviathan does not exist, so in case for that Leviathan, that body does not have particular borders, in case it does not have that consciousness, and in case that common consciousness that is not ruling over all these individual cells, us citizens within it, the natural condition of the world will be the war of all against all. It would be basically a total chaos. So therefore, sovereign from the perspective of the Hobbes needed to possess the absolute power, needed to possess the ultimate absolute decision-making mechanism in the situation, for example, of the crisis or in the situation of indecisiveness. And again, relating to the contemporary and in comparison to the world that existed before the invention of the nation state. We are all remembering the cases of the recent history, for example, Jamal Khashoggi killing in Turkey or any other, you know, elements of the uh, weird, let's say, appearances of the political events where it seems that nothing just is possible in the world. And in a sense that the person is being killed, for example, on the territory of the state, and then no one is meant to be prosecuted for that. And then the whole situation of who is meant to be responsible for the crimes of that sort of kind is only being uh, then transferred to the highest possible level of authority of the nation state. And that exactly is relating to a very important concept in relation to understanding what nation-state is. And that concept is the an ultimate power of the state of emergency. 
So in the state of emergency or in a state of indecisiveness, I would even call it like that, in a state when, for example, the rules are not very clear, the ultimate power lays with this idea of the sovereign, again, France, with this ultimate consciousness, deciding in the situations where the concept of justice or the specific, for example, conditions of enforcing the justice are becoming not possible. So, for example, the Jamal Khashoggi killing is so problematic because the United States is very much intertwined with Saudi Arabia and the United States cannot just condemn easily Saudi Arabia because of the economic ties connected. So, therefore, when the particular cell (laughs) dies in the body of one of the sovereigns, and although it dies unjustly, it's being killed by another agent's The decision on the fate of that cell lays in hands of the nation-state itself, and the nation-state is not obliged to act in any sense from the perspective of the fairness, how it's decided by those particular little elements that compose the whole nation-state as a whole. So therefore, the sovereign becomes an absolute tyrant, you could say, to the nation-states, are basically tyrants, the legitimized tyrants of today. Because, for example, if you are finding yourself in the situation that you oppose the threat to a nation state in one way or another, you're going to be eliminated in this world in one way or another again. Through the, for example, specific judicial mechanisms or through a physical elimination, take example, I don't know, of the Russian spies who are getting poisoned by that nation state very, very effectively and no one is getting prosecuted for that because he cannot prosecute the sovereign. Sovereign is sacred, basically. He cannot prosecute Russia as such, the consciousness of Russia. Or if you take the case of the WikiLeaks, for example, And you take the prosecution that is happening against WikiLeaks for the very, very long period of time already. So nothing is saving Julian Assange from the prosecution by the United States in one way or another. And although there is the right entangled mechanisms, it's still a conversation between the sovereigns. The Julian Assange fate, in that sense, is laying in the hands of the definition provided by the sovereign and provided by the nation state. So that exclusivity of the sovereignty and that social contract that we're all signing with the sovereign are providing somehow that absolute power to the idea of Russia or the idea of the UK defines the way we perceive contemporary political reality. And what is very interesting as well in that case, because although I call it a social contract, we actually don't really have a choice whether we can sign that contract or not. I was born, for example, in Russia, And I was given the Russian citizenship. So therefore, I was automatically assigned to be a part of the big body, which is called Russia. I was, my cell was somehow orbited around that big organism without my will being sort of taken into account. When I moved to Belgium and naturalized in Belgium and became Belgian citizen, I sort of by choice, you could say, aligned with another state. But again, the choice in that case is very much black and white. It's the choice of whether you are in or whether you're out. It does not really provide you too much of the flexibility of designing your political environment. You have to be part of one machine or another machine. This machine, that's Leviathan again. Sort of again, we could also compare metaphorically Leviathan of the Hobbes or and the nation states to some sort of a huge Frankensteins or huge sort of anthropomorphic golems that are composed of the other people around them. So the 
Concepts, therefore, that deriving from the idea of the nation-states are as fictional as the nation-state itself. So when we talk about the national cuisine, we talk about national cultures or folklore or national stories, these are as fictional as the nation itself, because most of those stories created in vernacular culture that did not know anything about the nation-state. For example, if you take the concept and the context of the contemporary Greece and compare it to the ancient Greece, those two places have very little in common from the political perspective because the current Hellenic Republic that is representing the ancient Greek heritage in the archaeological museums and historical museums and so on, presenting that heritage as a part of the continuous political history that sort of naturally leads to creation of the Hellenic Republic. But again, there is nothing natural about that creation. The creation of that concept derives from the uh, sort of an intercourse between these two documents, the Westphalian Treaty and the Leviathan of Hobbes, and then being interpreted and being incorporated in the forms of the constitutions and in the form of the very specific political documents that are then creating the structure of the perception of the political. The elements of that body are compared the Leviathan to this Frankenstein, that sort of a combination of the functions and the structures that are united within one body are basically an assembly of the mechanisms and the services that were created over the time by the other political organisms and by the other political structures. So no one invented a system of taxation initially in order to embody the idea of the state. The systems of taxations invented to sustain other political organisms and then they were incorporated into the nation state. So again, if we are taking this metaphor of the nation state as a Leviathan, this Habesian metaphor of looking at the nation state as a big body. So the body basically is composed of the organs that are initially started to incorporate different elements and structures into that body in order to create a new form. And the nation state is exactly a form. It's a form that encapsulates different political inventions that were carried out through the history to the point of the arrival to that shape, again, of the nation-state that we are now perceive as natural, as normal, and as everlasting. For example, in 18th century even, at the time when the concept of the nation-state was, you could say, already roaming, if you would compare people who were living on the border, what is called the border of France and Germany, in which country do they live, most of them would have not able to respond to that question because they had no idea and it didn't really matter to them in which country did they live because they spoke a mix of the local dialects of the language because, again, the idea of the national correct language, for example, as we speak a national, a very correct English or national very correct Turkish or national very correct Russian is also the product of monoculturalization that was very much necessary in order to embody the realness of that fiction of the nation state because people spoke multiplicity of the dialects in all those different places. And why I was speaking about the taxation before, people were relating to power in a sense to, to whom they're actually paying the tax on the activity that they're performing economically in that place where they live and also who is going to protect them in case some sort of a foreign power will invade and will try to attack them, for example. So in that sense, 
these people living on the borders, when they were asked, for example, sort of, where do you live? What is that place? The answer was based on the geographical locality of the area. And then the identity of the person on behalf of whom they are paying taxes on, or they are delivering specific bartered goods that they were needed to pay in order to be, to be provided that protection. So here we're actually arriving to the definition of the state of Noland in this particular moment. State of Noland was born as an idea within the analysis by the Ibenier Institute of this nation statehood of what could come after the nation state or what could exist beyond the nation state. And the state of Noland is not only the concept that somewhat orients and deals with the idea of the future statehood or with the idea of what could exist outside of the frame of the current nation state, but also state of Noland deals with the idea of what existed in the past other forms of the political design that pre-existed, in a way informed the idea of the nation-state. Because once again, nation-state is not a natural form of organization of politics, and in a way it reflects some sort of a superior to the human mind's concept that we are just inhabiting in any way. It is a very much a product of the human mind and very much product of the design. So to call the nation-state natural is like to call, for example, a particular design of a chair natural and call that this particular chair, for some reason, is created by the act of God and everything else, all the other chairs, are just imitations. Therefore, what is quite important to highlight when we talk about the future forms of organization in the nation state, for example, is the necessity to critically approach the concept of the nation state and to imagine what can exist beyond and outside of it. And that's exactly what the state of Noland point of departure is. Two particular names here that I would like to mention. Two particular thinkers are very important to understanding the rationalia of the state of Noland. It's the thinking of Gilles Deleuze, and particularly the concept of the rhizom, and the thinking of the Antonin Artaud, the French theorist of theater, that spoke a lot about the concept of organs existing without the body, organs coexisting between the functions engaging with one another and achieving goals without that overall frame that surrounds them, the frame of the body. Let's approach both of them separately. First, the concept of the rhizome. So the rhizome is very easy to understand through a metaphoric, again, and actually very much of a natural phenomena of comparison between the tree and the network of mushrooms, for example, or the sweet potatoes, <laughs> as another interesting example could be here. The tree grows very you could say structurally and systemically. You have a root, you have a stem, and then you have branches, and the tree produces specific fruits. And for example, those fruits are being carried by the winds or they're being carried by the gravity in case of some apple tree. And the seeds are meant to produce other trees. So it's very vertical and very much centralized form of growth and very centralized form of um, sustaining itself. And I would compare tree to the nation state in that sense. There is a stem, basically it's a very, very clear structure. The, the stem is very important. The roots are very important. The roots could be compared of the tree to, for example, the national stories, could be compared to the national epos, national culture, idea of national music, something that defines the national unconscious. The stem, in a way, is the state institutions. It's the government, it's everything that basically keeps the society together. And then the branches and the, the leaves are all 
all the people that are temporary, that are being changed season to season, but they are actually reproducing. They're helping the tree to actually continue to exist because, the, you know, the leaves are capturing the sunlight and through the process of converting that sunlight in the energy, give the energy to the roots and so on and so on and so on. But there is another form of growth in nature. And that form of growth is called rhizoma or rhizomatic growth. And that is very much interesting in the case of, for example, mushrooms or in the case of sweet potato. Those of you listeners who ever encountered with the field, for example, of the sweet potatoes know that it's really hard to get rid of the sweet potato because there is basically no centralized point from where the growth starts and from where the growth continues and how it's sort of, it's really impossible to halt the growth as such. You could scorch the whole field of the sweet potato, but if you will leave at least one little element of it, it will still continue to grow. It's similar with mushrooms. Mushrooms are covering the territories in the woodlands that are enormous and you can't really find a particular stem of the root of the mushrooms because everything is a sort of a root and everything at the same time is a stem and everything is a nervous system and to speak of course about the nervous system in a metaphorical way everything is the system that engages the electromagnetic signals exchanges the resources exchanges the vital energy sources that are then spread from one place into another and from that perspective, the rhizomatic structure is much more resilient and much more adaptable to the environment around itself. While the tree, for example, could be very easily cut down with, you know, with one particular axe. And that's exactly what happens if we again compare, before we compare the nation states to particular golems or like walking people in a way. But now imagine the nation states and the whole concert of the nation states as a forest of the static trees. And then every now and then particular tree hires a woodland sort of a army that is coming and just cutting down that tree. And then the state therefore is becoming destroyed with the, the stem of itself is not able to support the leaves. While it is impossible to imagine something like that happening with rhizomatic structure. So therefore, rhizomatic structure, again, as a natural metaphor, appears to be much more resilient and provides much more interesting results from the perspective of the future orientation of the growth of that particular organism. Plus, beyond that as well, the rhizomatic structure is exchanging the signals in between itself in much more defunctionalized way. So everything is exchanging functions inside of that structure. While in the tree, if you take the tree analogy, the functions of each part of the tree are very, very much outlined and everything is interconnected through the preservation of that functional redistribution of functionalities. The state of knowledge is posing the idea of necessity to rethink political organization from the perspective of rhizomatic thinking rather than arboreal thinking, this tree-like thinking. And that's the first fundamental definition of what state of knowledge is. It's a rhizomatic frame of statehood. Then let's turn to the second person whom I was talking about just before, the French theorist Antonin Orteau. So he was speaking about the possibility of organs engaging without the body. And this metaphor we're taking into the context of the state of Noland as an idea that essentially allows us to think about those 
parts and the systems of governance and those parts of the systems of the nation state as an individual entities that could engage between themselves without the anthropomorphic form. So basically Antonin Artaud allows us to depart from the metaphor of the nation states being those leviathans, being those basically figures of men somewhat. We, in a way, dissect that man and take out the particular functions and their interrelations and synergies that exist within that structure and try to imagine how those particular functions could coexist with one another, engage with one another, help one another, and create the context of the political beyond the necessity to replicate the structure of a man, of that organism that is very much similar to ourselves. By departing from that metaphor, we are also allowing ourselves to imagine the political organism that does not require the sovereign, does not require that metaphor of Russia or speaking with Greece or Turkey speaking with France and so on and so on and so on. So we basically erase that collective, that imposed collective consciousness and speak about the functions within those particular elements of the political landscape, what are now called the nation state. So, for example, imagine engagement of the particular functionalities within the states by themselves without necessity to put on them that blanket frame that is called the nation state with its flag, with its national anthem, with a king or a queen or specific forms that are in a way, legitimizing the structure of the political. So imagining departing from that structure is something that is very much fundamental to the concept of the state of Noland. So synergizing those two thinking, the thinking of rhizomatic attitude towards the resource engagement and exchange, and the idea of the body that is composed only of the organs and does not really have that necessary frame that creates out of all the other organs the situation that their performance is unclear, that basically we perceive the nation state, the France, as France, and we don't think about the internal elements of actually what composes the France as France, allows us to critically rethink how politics works and how exactly the, all the organisms of the political decision-making and all the elements of resource exchange are actually framing the way we perceive reality. And therefore, as again, our thinking within the context of the state of Nolan continues, that reframing of politics will allow us to rethink the necessity for claiming any fundamental attachments to national identities or national cultures or idea of ancestry as such becomes antiquated because, the, again, in the rhizomatic thinking, you are automatically coming from the center and from the periphery. There is no definition and no difference between the center and periphery because they're exactly similar. They're horizontal in distribution of the resources in between themselves. So therefore, the state of Nolentos is inherently democratic. It's moreover radically democratic because it does not presume any hierarchy per se. It imitates the idea of spreading the structures virally, you could say, the ideas spreading virally within the organism that does not perceive and understand the hierarchies and only think functionally. And state of Noland, of course, cannot, as a product, again, of the uh, 
such a small organization as Avenir Institute is not claiming to be that particular organism that will provide the alternative and that will create the alternative reality of any kind or will replace the nation state tomorrow. That will be very silly from our perspective. State of Noland is first of all, the aesthetic tool of resistance, the aesthetic tool of resistance against the naturalness and normalization and deification of the nation state. For example, the first element of the state of Noland, as we were creating it, was to create exactly those high-level obstructions of the nation state that we are perceiving on the everyday basis. The flag, the coat of arms, the anthem, the idea of specific shape and border, the idea of what it consists of, and so on. These were the first elements that we decided to imitate by creating the nation-state. And how we decided to address this imitation through institution the citizenship of the state of Noland. And actually, any of you listening right now can become a citizen of the state of Noland right as you are listening to me right now. Just go to state of noland.info and just put your email address in there and you're automatically becoming a citizen of that resumatic state. Exactly how basically mushrooms are continuing to grow without needing to receive a permission from some sort of a center, without needing to pass any specific test or knowledge of the national language or national history or living being attached to that land for a prolonged period of time in order to claim attachment to that political organism. So the state of Noland exactly throws into the garbage all of those um, elements of violence, as I would not afraid, be afraid of calling them, that is needed to be performed on us, on these little cells of the Leviathans, in order to be presumed to be a part of a political organism. State of Noland is the project that claims that identity should not be owned by any imaginary structures and by any imaginary elements and the compositions of the ideology that are meant to pin us down to the ground and create out of ourselves the slaves of particular structures of imaginary that we don't have any control of and we can only invest into the continuation or development but cannot do anything in order to change them. So another element that was created by the state of Noland beyond, again, the idea of the citizenship at the particular moment, at the conceptual frame of what components could be presented as a part of that rhythmatic network. Through the uh, several performance lectures and several lecture performances that were delivered so far on the basis of the state of Noland, we arrived to the important milestone in uh, challenging the very ground of the idea of the Leviathan and the core element of the logic of Westphalian Treaty, which is the concept of geopolitics that I referred to in the first place. Because remember, in the beginning, I said that before the Westphalian Treaty, the borders between the states were not approached as a sort of a sacred lines that are not meant to be crossed in any way or form. The borders actually between the kingdoms were very dynamic and were changing all the time. And no one really particularly knew what sort of particular curve the border has. The idea of having these particular borders, and we open the 
history books, for example, and we see the borders of Persian Empire, the borders of Greek Empire, whatever and whatever, from 2,000, 3,000 years ago. But again, this is a way of applying the contemporary logic of border on the historical narrative. And it's inherently incorrect. And this inherent incorrect mistake is still being performed by the historians, by many other academics that are referring analysis of that border concept into the historical narrative and applying that lens and the logic of modernity to the ancient history. That's exactly what I was meaning by saying that state of knowledge challenges both the future and the past in perception. And this conceptual innovation that we introduced is actually the challenge to exactly this geo in the politics. And the geo is coming from the another elements of the fundamental ideas of what could be highlighted as the platform where the politics could be located. Because the platform, like geo again, the lens, is just providing for us, for our thinking, a sort of a landing spot, as a place where we could depart in our thinking about the world. And that departing in our thinking about the world could not happen from this idea of just cutting out the land in pieces and then fighting the eternal wars over it. Think about Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the conflicts on the Indian-Pakistani border and any other border conflicts in Europe and so on that are basically are not having any end in the first place. It's just a logical structure that is creating the context for the conflict. But what if we will imagine the politics that is not grounded on geo, basically on the lens, but grounded on the other, what we call ether, another substance. And that's exactly where the state of Noland as a project is located currently. We are with some of our artistic friends and partners and collaborators exploring what other ethers of politics, what other platforms for political thinking can be used in order to imagine a better world, a world without necessity for the constant war and contestation about the maritime borders, about the land borders, about borders that are even drawn now in the air. I'm not talking about the oceans and, and splitting the ocean pieces and so on. In that sense, if we are departing from the body again, because the returning to that metaphor of Leviathan. What is the land in that sense? Land is in a way is a skin of Leviathan. And that particular skin is being somewhat drawn on in order to create the geographical spaces that are called the nation states. But if we throw away that skin and we stop claiming that there are specific political borders and we imagine that our political imaginary is suddenly structured around the ether or the substance like air, and that presents us with opportunity to replace geopolitics with aeropolitics, with the politics that is then led not by principles of the land, particular skin of Leviathan, but the principles of the dynamics of the air. You cannot, for example, draw borders in the air. You cannot rule over the winds in any way. So therefore, the concept of sovereignty over specific territory, even the idea of territory disappears. And the aeropolitics is one of the elements of the project that we developed with the artist Thomas Saraceno and the Irisine Foundation that he founded several years ago. Then another substance is water, for example, aqua. And here we come from the idea of looking at the uh, this plot formation from the idea of the aqua politics. 
And then again, water is dynamic. You cannot really identify which molecule of water is located where at the particular moment of time. So therefore, border, again, as the idea, becomes useless. You cannot really borderline the water in any form or way. And another, for example, context, if we even distance further from our planet Earth and somehow go into the vacuum, is the a substance that could be called vacuum. And it's canopolitics, the politics in the vacuum where you also are not able to draw any sort of borders in the first place and not able to establish sovereignties. So this is where the State of Nolan Project is bringing the thinking, political thinking, because the main purpose of the State of Nolan is not to replace the nation state or to produce some sort of a utopian alternative or some sort of a revolutionary ready-made answer to what to do with our particular problems and with our very much effed up world. But I think we do something even more important than that because I don't believe in any of those utopian structures or these ready-made answers being actually correct or being not more even dangerous than this current broken system that we're having in our hands. But State of Nolan allows us to critically reassess the very fundamental and naturalized ideas about statehood, about our belonging, about our identity, about ourselves as cultural beings, being attached to a particular pieces of land that are defined by two papers that were drafted up to just again redistribute power in particular moment of time in that 17th century. And the state of Noland, first of all, battles with against naturalization of that particular frame of thinking that was introduced into our world just several hundred years ago and presenting itself even now in 21st century as the ultimate form of political thinking.